Hello and welcome to B-Side, where we revisit business world stories and tell a few of our own. As I record this introduction, more than 700 patients in the Philippines have recovered from COVID-19. PH377, who spoke to Business World on condition of anonymity, is one of them. In this episode, he tells reporter Van Villegas about his brush with death and the epiphany he had while confined in the hospital. The symptoms of COVID-19 differ from patient to patient. Some people get sicker than others. Some die. Some live. PH377 lived, and this is his journey. So today, we are speaking with patient 377, one of more than 400 survivors of COVID-19. Good morning po. Hello, good morning. Can you share your experience with us po prior to your testing? Ano pong symptoms ang na-manifest sa inyo? The story began around March 5. I was in London for a conference. I was supposed to proceed to the U.S. for two other conferences. However, these got postponed while I was in London, so I decided to come back to Manila. On uh, March 12, I took the flight from London to Manila via Brunei and I was fetched by my wife and our driver at Naia on the night of uh, March 12. That was Thursday. I came home. I didn't feel any symptoms at all except for pain in my knee because I've always had this chronic knee injury I got from October last year. So it was really terrible. I couldn't walk properly while I was in the UK. So I told my wife, I think I need to have this checked the next day. When I came home and that was... Uh, 12th of March, just to be on the conservative side because I knew what was happening already here in Manila. I decided to take the empty room that we had at home and sleep there, not with my wife and not with my children. The next day, March 13, I had the chance to go to the hospital to have my knee checked. And this was a Friday. I went to the ortho specialist. He took a look at my knee and he said, okay, let's do the procedure. Next Monday, that was supposed to be the 16th of March. So he had me sent home. And while I was waiting for my ride, I was standing in front of the ambulatory section of the hospital. And I think that's where I got the virus. I've thought about this a lot of times and looked at many angles. I could only think of that as the source of the virus because when I came home from Naia, I was lucky to have not infected anyone at home, neither my wife nor the driver. And uh, my symptoms only appeared the day after I went to the knee specialist. That was Saturday the 14th. So on that day, I started feeling flu-like symptoms. I didn't have any cough, but I had uh, terrible body pains. I had chills. I had a very high fever. And I decided to just be on the safe side, just to drive myself back to the hospital and have myself swapped. So I went to the hospital and there were four of us in the tent outside of ER waiting for a swab. I got the very last test kit. And I was the fourth person to be swabbed that day. Again, this was March 14. Being that there would be no immediate results, they sent me home and they said to check back. In about three days or so, obviously I had to self-isolate at home. And it was official. I had to really not be in contact with anyone. So I went home, locked myself up in the same room. And after two nights, March 16, Monday, 4 a.m. the morning, I woke up. I couldn't move my arms. I was feeling pins and needles on my extremities, on my chest. And I was panting like a dog. I was taking in maybe two or three breaths a second. And that was the very first time I felt that. So I decided to take my things, my car keys, and mustered all my strength to drive myself back to the hospital. On the way out, I told my wife, I need to go to the hospital because I need oxygen. We don't have oxygen at home. So that was the first, or would I say, the second day of the Manila or Luzon-wide ECQ. I was lucky because for two things, I was able to muster enough strength to drive myself to the hospital. And two, I didn't get myself into any trouble with the um, checkpoints. 
when I got to the hospital, I drove to the parking of the hospital, decided not to leave my car in the ER because it would have been a problem for people to park my car. So I decided to park myself and ask the guard near the elevator to bring me to the ER on a wheelchair. And the radio DAER come pick me up on the ground floor and someone else wheeled me to the ER. And there were already three frontlighters waiting at the ER door. So two nurses and one doctor, they were all in PPEs. So the hospital was well trained to receive me. And after one hour, 6 a.m., I was already taken in as a um, PUI. So they brought me to a regular hospital room, hooked me up to supplementary oxygen and uh, put an IV line for my nutrients. So that was uh, day one, March 16th. Sir, luckily, you were confined immediately at the hospital. After a few days, when did you get the result of the test? You're right. I would backtrack and after all of this have had happened and I came back home, I read about stories of people not being as lucky as I was. They had to wait eight days in the ER and had to wait for an hospital room or were even turned away by hospitals altogether. So you're right. I'm very lucky. I don't know if I deserve this luck. Indeed, I was able to get a hospital room and I got the result of the swab from March 14 on day six of my hospital stay. So that was March 21. Our ITM called me inside my hospital room and told me of the news that uh, my swab turned positive. And that was when they uh, arranged for me to be transferred to the COVID wing of the hospital, which happened on day nine. So transferred me there and that's where the worst part of my hospital stay happened. Can you walk me through, Paul? How was the treatment and how were you feeling when you were confirmed COVID patient? Well, actually, half of me was kind of ready for it. Because again, as I told you, I never felt anything like it. Symptoms like you couldn't breathe, you couldn't eat, you were throwing up everything that they gave you, whether it's water, solid food, everything went back out as a vomit. I had very high fever. I needed supplementary oxygen because I had an underlying condition called obstructive sleep apnea, which I've had since 2008. So they couldn't even make me sleep on my belly or in the prone position, which I heard was um, beneficial for some other COVID patients. So I was always lying down on my back. And every single night, I couldn't sleep. You may have heard of stories where they said COVID patients would relay that peace comes out at night. That's very true because whenever you try to sleep at around 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock, 10 o'clock, you felt very tired for having been up all day. You try to lie down, close your eyes, and maybe after two minutes, you'll start coughing. And I would have that whatever position I would take, whether I would elevate my head, all the positions possible, I did and I tried and I would always cough. What I would do is I would try to sit up, watch TV, and uh, I would fall asleep like a student back in the day when, when you've pulled in all nighter. So it was really terrible. You would be lucky to get two hours of sleep at night. And again, you had high fever, you couldn't breathe, you had supplementary oxygen, you have an IV line. They were giving you chloroquine, which started on day nine. I obviously signed consent for it. So I knew that it worked for me. And um, one of the things that I remember from chloroquine was in as much as it was effective and helped me heal, it did other things to my body as well. The most remarkable of which was things that it did to my mind. So I'm not sure if this applies to all patients, maybe not. But for me, I went to the point wherein I actually was talking to voices that were not there inside the room. So I would hallucinate, I would hear things. And um, the lowest point for me actually was around day 12 or day 13, where I suddenly felt that I couldn't move my body and all I can move were my eyeballs. That was when I thought maybe this is it. Maybe the next day I won't be 
around anymore. I won't be alive anymore. So I gathered all my strength to do a video call. I called my children, the eldest of which is just a young teenager. I called each and every one of them. And I told them, anything happens to me, take care of your mother, be nice children, be very good ladies, and be very good peoples of the world. So I actually told them that I might not make it. So they were all crying. Luckily, the next day, I woke up and I realized I was still alive. And that was day 14. That was also the day when my attending doctor, the head of infectious disease at the hospital, came to me and heard that I was having a low point as a patient. And she told me, did you know that I'm also under quarantine because I couldn't go home myself because I'm exposed to patients like you. I couldn't visit my children. I couldn't visit my family. And that applies to all of us here, the nurses that go to your room in PPEs, serve your food, serve your medicines. All of us couldn't go home. And here you are giving up on us. At that point, I realized that my battle wasn't just for me to fight for. People were fighting for me. My family was fighting for me. My doctors were fighting for me. Nurses were there to make sure that nothing bad happens to me. And that was when I realized that it would be too selfish for me to give up. Starting on that day, day 14, I told myself I will do my best to fight and win. So that represented sort of a trough in my journey as a patient. And from that point on, I gathered all the strength I could to win this. I understand, sir, your family could not visit you because you're in quarantine. How were you able to deal with that? The hardest part really is not to be able to share each and every moment with your loved ones. I'm not so much a, a very sharing person. I'm not so much a very extroverted person. But during those times, those 18 days I was in the hospital, I really felt the importance of family. In that all these times, starting day one when I went to the hospital, my wife was really carrying all the burden. She couldn't get out. She wanted to really go to my side, bring me clothes, bring me supplies, touch my hand, put me to sleep, but she couldn't do so. And the best she can come up with was video chat or video calls on Viber. Those were the little things that I appreciated. I came to really value. I mean, just being able to see your children do mundane things like do their homework at home or complain about being bored with the quarantine or complain about online school. Those are the things that I came to realize I was missing out on before I became sick with COVID. It was that appreciation that made me realize that despite all of the things you may have earned in life, you may have saved up in all the assets you may have accumulated, all of these things do not matter. When you're faced with death, you couldn't call anyone. No matter how well-connected you are, no matter how many powerful people you know, try to call them. They couldn't do anything for you. I think this illness, whether or not we are a patient of it directly or we may have heard stories about it, this illness makes people realize how fickle material life is. And again, this is my journey. This is my experience. It may differ from one person to another. But in my case, that's the number one thing I realized. You couldn't put a premium or you didn't put a price on time, not just with your family, but also yourself. So on the 17th day, that my second swab, which was taken on the um, 11th day, turned out negative. What happened was this was March 31. The attending doctor, the head of the um, infectious disease department, walked into my room. This was the same doctor who told me, why would you give up? This was the end time 
she walked into my room and I was prepared to kind of hear from her that my third x-ray or my second CT scan was still showing signs of disease progression. I was not getting old, but no, it was different. She told me that my second swab turned out negative. I was over the moon. I jumped out for joy. And then I told her, thank you, doc, for telling me today and not the next day because next day would have been April Fool's Day. I told her I wouldn't have believed you if you waited till tomorrow. So that was really one of the best days of my life, March 31. So sir, those little things were able to motivate you to focus on recovering. When were you able to get home? So the doctor, when she told me that I was already negative for the virus, she told me, I promise you'll get home tomorrow. You just have to go through the paperwork. You just have to make sure that when you come home, you won't go into any other complications. Because even though I've already ridden of myself of the virus, I've already been cleared of the virus, I was still prone to getting other infections. So they just made sure that I can support myself at home and not return to the hospital again as a relapsed patient. I replied to her, Doc, please take your time. I know you might be surprised to hear this from me, but I don't want to go home if you think I'm not ready yet. Because... You're right, I don't want to go back to the hospital for maybe 10 years. I just want to be at home for good. I did get home on April 1st. The next day, I was released at around 5 p.m. As you could imagine, no one could pick me up. So they wheeled me to the parking area and I drove myself home. It was surreal because remember, it had been 18 days. So when I drove back home, that was when I took full stock of what ECQ really felt like. The roads were empty and almost every establishment was closed. But the most important thing was when I got home. When I entered our door, my family was there. And I thought I was the luckiest man in the world. Thankfully, sir, you were able to get home immediately right after knowing that you tested negative. When you got home, sir, did you feel any sickness or did you get any complications or none at all? I was kind of very observant of my own body when I got home because the hospital also had me take some home medications and antiviral just to make sure that all other viruses wouldn't intervene or wouldn't get in the way. Another was an antibiotic, and the third one was a vitamin C plus zinc supplement. So I would religiously take that, all those three. And for the first few days, I couldn't even complete three sentences. If you'd ask me to speak, I would reply to you, and then I would suddenly feel fatigued. So I would need to sit down or lie down after three sentences. So it was a slow return to normalcy or whatever normalcy felt like or was like. But maybe after four days or so, I regained my appetite. I was already eating almost every food that you would give me. But one thing I kind of carried over from my hospital stay was, remember, I told you I couldn't eat anything up till maybe day 10. I started eating in the hospital when they started giving me fruits. So all I ate was fruits maybe till day 15. It really gave me some sort of um, energy from a very pure source. So eating fruits, back when before I got COVID. So something that I thought, oh, maybe I could just pass, pass up on that. You know, there are other things that I really like coffee and donuts. But today, if you ask me take coffee, I, I couldn't bear it. One of the things that I got from it, eating food. So up to this very day, we're lucky that we found a supplier who would deliver us fruits from, from the market. And I would eat that as a snack. And fast forward to the day, it's been almost 20 days since I was discharged. I think it's 
18 days since I was discharged. Not only do I have my full appetite back, but I've also been able to exercise. I would use the elliptical machine or the stationary bike for nine kilometers three times a week. So that way I could maintain the weight loss that I kind of earned during my hospitals. They actually lost 18 pounds or one pound a day over 18 days. So I decided to really maintain that just to make sure that only would I live more healthily, but also my sleep apnea wouldn't return. When you were confined, you realized that the mundane things that you often overlook were important in your recovery. What are your plans now moving forward? When I was in the hospital, there was this low point around day 12 or day 13. My family and my, my wife, my children would talk to me whenever they can. We would do Viber calls, video calls. But of course, there were times when you're really alone and you have to really fight with your own mind, try to direct your thoughts away from negative things. But at the same time, you have to be prepared for the eventuality that kick the bucket, you die. So I did what I had to do. As I told you, I told my children that in case something happens to me, um, do this, do that. But not only that, I actually made a pact with God. I told him that if you'd allow me to get through this alive, I'll do things differently. The first of which is I'll spend more time with my family. I've been working for 25 years. I've been in business for 20 years. And I think whatever else I can earn in life, how much more money I can earn in life wouldn't matter anymore. It wouldn't match the time that I would be able to spend with my family. My children are growing up. The eldest would be in college in a few years. I wouldn't miss it for the world to be there with them as they go through this phase. So told my wife I'd semi-retire. I'd be at the office for only three days a week. And as much as I can, I'd pay it forward. If I get out of this alive, I'll try to help the frontliners. I'll try to donate my blood plasma. Basically, I'll just be a better person. I realized how much of a uh, worry work I was before I got COVID. I was leading a very fast-paced life. And I was trying to cram 48 hours in 24 hours. For those who are in business, you know what I'm talking about. And I thought that's not possible anymore. That's not sustainable. So I did that. I put everything into Evernote and I signed it digitally on my phone. And I said, if you'll allow me, God, to come home alive, I'll do this. And sure enough, God is good. He kept this part of the deal and it's my turn to do. When I went home, I immediately went to work, not to work office work, but to work on my pack and spent time with my family. It has been a terrific 18 days with the family. The other weekend, I jammed with my eldest daughter. We played electric guitar for the first time together. I don't play guitars, but I knew a few chords here and there, and it was magical. We played Basket Case by Green Day. She would take after me. I'd show her the chords. She would repeat after me. She learned in, in five minutes. And for me, those five minutes were or five minutes never spent with her before. I would pay millions for that, but good thing I didn't have to be my life for it. I lived long enough to see that. The symptoms you had were from mild to severe, if it would be considered that. And you were confined for around 18 days, as you said. Can you share with us the cost of care? I've heard of patients here in the Philippines spending seven digits, 50 pesos for, for their hospitalization. And um, I feel sorry for them. And I think the uh, cost matters from one patient to another. It depends on which hospital you go to, whatever circumstances you may have faced. In my case, I would actually think that my case was really severe to critical in that I was close to being intubated, but luckily I didn't get intubated because I had 
two CT scans and three x-rays showing that my pneumonia was not improving. I had a collapsed left lung when I arrived on day one, and I couldn't take any food till day nine. Those 18 days I spent in the hospital, maybe two-thirds of that was in a way that you could say my condition wasn't really good. That said, the amount that I spent at the hospital, I think, is much less than what I got out of it in terms of, number one, a second lease on life, and number two, an appreciation of the small things that we often overlook as busy people. So however much I spent on the hospitalization, I think if you'd allow me to use an analogy with a movie, Confessions of a Shopaholic, where there's this scene wherein the job applicant was lining up for a hot dog and the guy who was in a suit turned out to be her interviewer, bought all the hot dogs. She was kind of frustrated and the guy simply said, cost versus worth. For me, the cost is minimal versus the worth that I'd get out of it. I'd be able to interview you. I'd be able to come back to my office early enough to interview my job applicants, which turned out to be, you know, included her. So cost versus worth, whatever the cost was, the best IRR or the best NPV you can get out of as an investor. Of course, I wouldn't wish any of the listeners here to go through the same thing that I went through, but it's one of the things that I learned. Money is very much secondary to life. Any advice to those who are currently admitted or under monitoring for COVID-19? I'm not sure if they'll hear me, if they're lucky to listen to this after they're healed and well and recovering at home. The journey is different from each person, but the message is the same. This virus, this pandemic, this illness doesn't choose who you are, doesn't choose your status in life, doesn't choose your political leanings, doesn't choose your creed, your religion, doesn't choose your gender doesn't choose your preferences, doesn't choose your circumstances. We are all prone to this. And if you've had this, if you're one of us who have had this, I hope that you find in your heart of hearts the message that lies beneath it. And you'll find the purpose why you came out of it alive. And for those who are still battling for their lives, remember that people are there fighting for you too. It might be a lonely journey, especially when you're alone. You would say it's easier said than done. I did feel exactly that. When you're alone, you feel like jumping out of your hospital room to end it all. There's always the next day. A new morning would always bring hope. And just remember the people who are sacrificing their lives for you, the frontliners, the plasma donors, the nurses, and your loved ones. However they remote may be, however detached they may be, people love you, people care for you. Do your darnest best to fight and find that purpose when you do come out of it alive. I do pray for everyone who's fighting this. Just dig in deep, just look for that strength and you'll find it if you just look for it. And that concludes another episode of B-Side. Once again, you heard PH377 in conversation with Van Villegas. During these anxious times, we hope that you are able to find joy and comfort in the little things. This episode was recorded remotely on April 17, more than two weeks after PH377 tested negative for COVID-19 and was able to return home to his family. This is Samuel Marcelo. Thanks for listening. Keep safe and keep sane.